0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: Hey, welcome to the latest edition of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball back for another week near the end of August. Tyler Mon, Benjamin Hill, Sam Dykstra. I we've been doing this podcast for like seven years now, eight years now. I somehow week to week become even more self-conscious about how bad my intros are. Uh, how are you guys doing today? I just like started laughing at it. Just, hey, Michael, man, 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 man. how are you guys? I mean, you're always establishing the energy
0: of the show. And then we are just like taking the baton from you. So if it was just like, here we are on the show before the show, that would be a, a bad way to start. So I will take your intros every week as I do. Like, I don't really have a choice in the matter. That's but- true. You don't. That's true. I would, I would tell you if, if like, if they got real so, bad and I had to
1: a- really got to change this up, you sound like a circus monkey, which in my head I do. It's okay. I like a circus monkey.
0: No. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, uh, things are good here. We're, we're closing in on September, which is, you know, a big month for baseball in general. And we'll talk about that later in the show, Tyler, with rosters expanding and the minor leagues coming to a close. And we're already in postseason baseball, technically, like, the complex leagues are starting playoffs yeah. this week, um, which, you know, you can take or leave whether you care about the complex leagues and, and the playoffs. But we know the guys playing in them care about them. So congrats to everybody competing for some sort of ring uh, down in Florida and Arizona and, and the Dominican. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it feels like you can see the the end on the horizon, but there's still lots left of the season. So it's it's not quite here yet. And is that more right left feel,
1: than, uh, than it used to be. It used to be. We look at that first week of September and Labor Day and regular season wrapping up, and we've got uh, more than that now with the, the minor league schedule in 2022. Ben, what's going on with you?
2: Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, Labor Day was always basically the end for almost all of minor league baseball. I feel like sometimes the Pioneer League would trickle past Labor Day a little bit. Uh, but So it is kind of funny to think, oh, we got baseball going regular season minor league baseball at certain levels all the way almost through the end of September. So I think that's a good feeling because, you know, it's a long off season and it's hard to keep up the momentum. So uh, I think for me, I'm in a little bit of a a lull after, you know, quite a lot of travel been home for a couple of weeks. Uh, I am going to do a few more ballpark visits before the season's out. We can get into that uh, in a future episode in the very near future. Uh, But yeah, it's kind of just back at home and, uh, ready for the home stretch. I'm seeing a I've uh, been seeing a recent spate of um, penultimate homestand press releases and Twitter mentions and not to toot my own horn, but I played a, I think a substantial role in the increase of the use of the word penultimate throughout the minor league baseball industry, at least among, you know, media relations, broadcasting uh, professionals. And uh, so when I see those press releases, I, I think to myself, you know, before I came on the scene, that would have said second to last. And so when people assess my legacy, I think that'll be perhaps
0: the greatest one. Every once in a while, you'll see like somebody posts on Twitter, a Google search term, like something that's just become part of the zeitgeist in a very interesting way. And you can see the spike. I, I'd be interested to see penultimate where that's like, where Ben started in this job, just for the internet yeah. at large. I don't think very we can true. isolate it to minor league baseball. I don't think that's how Google searches work, but maybe Ben's influence goes beyond Minor league media people and broadcasters. And we've just seen a spike since what, 2008 in in the use of penultimate? Yeah,
2: perhaps. I mean, maybe it started with me and within the world of minor league baseball and then is breaking out from there and where we're going to be just globally. Before long in the age of the penultimate. I mean, it's an old word, but we need to use it more. I mean, it's so much more fun to say penultimate than second to last and anti-penultimate for third to last. I'm not sure if there's a word for fourth to last. Then you're getting a little too esoteric for even... for even uh that's where ben draws the line. yeah you got to draw the line somewhere so let's uh let's cap it at anti-penultimate
1: i like the idea of us being in the penultimate era because pretty much every day in life now does kind of feel like it might be the penultimate day for uh the world um but uh it's a good, right. it's a good legacy but have. if it's
2: always the penultimate day that always, sure. always means
1: you got one and more it never so ends. You're, you're still good to go it as never the ends. great Vince scully would have said we uh we can keep the sun in the sky for a little longer and i like that um well, let's dive right in. We've got a story up at MILB.com um, from Ben about uh continuing along from his journey through Oklahoma, a really cool one about the uh Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame, which is located in the Bricktown neighborhood of Oklahoma City, uh, which is, of course, the uh the home to Chickasaw Bricktown Ballpark. That is where the Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame resides in the ballpark for a state that I would say not a lot of people know a ton about Oklahoma produces a lot of talent, whether it's athletes, whether, and the lead to Ben story is terrific astronauts, country music stars and athletes. We just seem to spit them out. Um, That's Justin Lenhart's uh, description of, uh, of the home state of the Oklahoma sports hall of fame. Uh, And he's a guy who would know a lot about it. This is a really cool story.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed uh, you know writing up the story and and visiting the uh, Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame. Um, you know, that was from my visit to the Oklahoma City Dodgers uh, at the end of July, and uh, yeah, I get a lot of material on the road, so it took me a little while to uh, return to this and get a story up. But the first time I visited the, the Burktown Ballpark in 2012, the Hall of Fame was not. On the premises in 2018, the Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame moved into the ballpark in what had been a restaurant space and underperforming restaurant space. So it's a really cool tie-in to have this ballpark uh, host the state Hall of Fame. It's a separate entity. Um, you know, it's usually not open during the games. It's not run by the Dodgers, but it is there in the ballpark. And you know, since the ballpark has opened, it's been surrounded by statues and plaques dedicated to Oklahoma baseball greats. Um, you know, Mickey Mantle. Johnny Bench, uh, Warren Spahn, There's statues of all them. The street names are, you know, also honor those individuals and others. Uh, There's a Joe Carter Street or Alley or something along those lines. Uh, There's also Flaming Lips Alley behind the ballpark, not an athlete, but Flaming Lips Alley runs behind the ballpark uh, in honor of the Flaming Lips, the band. I don't know what else they'd be. I don't know why I had to qualify the, <laughs> that they are banned. Uh, you know, they're they're from Oklahoma City, but anyway, the Oklahoma uh, Oklahoma State Hall of Fame. Um, you know, when I visited, I was like, yeah, I'm here. Of course, I'll take a tour. But you know, being someone who doesn't have roots in Oklahoma and is not a college, I don't really follow college uh, athletics closely. I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know how interesting I'll find this, uh, but I found it to be a really interesting museum and a place definitely worth visiting if you're you know, from the area or you're visiting Oklahoma city to see the Dodgers or whatever uh, reason you're in Oklahoma city. Um, First of all, it's, you know, kind of subtitled the Jim Thorpe museum. So there's a lot on display related to Jim Thorpe uh, you know, who was born before Oklahoma statehood um, on uh, American Indian territory. Um, And uh, he went to a, you know, a boarding school growing up and, you know, had an unhappy childhood tried to run away um you know, wasn't even an American citizen when he won um because American because Native Americans were not you know uh considered American citizens. one he represented the us in the nineteen twelve Olympics and won two two uh, gold medals and then he was stripped of those medals because it had been found out he won he played minor league baseball, which I guess technically made him not a professional. That was but, back in the news recently and right? that was in the news because they finally gave Thorpe his his medals Just for um, those, yeah so there's a lot on. Jim Thorpe, his legacy, um, you know, Native Americans uh, in Oklahoma prior to Oklahoma actually being a state, their experiences, what they faced. Um, So there's just a lot of, you know, history to explore at the museum related to Jim Thorpe, uh, you know, as well as all sorts of other people. But the museum really has a mission in talking to Justin Lenhart, the curator, you know, to go beyond just like the big name, uh, you know, Oklahoma osu football guys and the mickey mantles and johnny benches and uh, really tell the story of oklahoma and america through through the athletes so jim thorpe is obviously a huge uh, part of that and then a a kind of tie-in to the oklahoma city dodgers team is that the only person other than jim thorpe to play major league baseball and win an olympic medal in a different sport than baseball is eddie Alvarez who is on the Oklahoma city Dodgers this year is currently injured, but he's played like 47 games this year uh, with uh, Oklahoma city Dodgers. And he actually toured the museum. Yeah. He won a uh, 2014 speed skating medal and then uh, made his major league debut six years later. And he's spent time in the majors, 2020, 21, 22. Um, so there he is playing uh for the Oklahoma City Dodgers. Uh there's this Jim Thorpe Museum within the Oklahoma uh State Hall of F- uh Sports Hall of Fame. And so Eddie Alvarez uh Alvarez got to visit, learn about Jim Thorpe. Um I linked to a um Dodgers uh, article about th- uh his visit and um you know how genuinely I think excited and um, just how educationally he found it to learn about this guy he shares a distinction with of uh, being a uh, Olympic medalist who went on to play Major League Baseball. So, pretty uh, random story there. But, um, you know, I'm someone who likes rabbit holes and all sorts of little avenues to explore. The more obscure, the better. But this museum really had a lot of that where you could really, um, you know, learn about a lot of different things. Uh, what this, you know, agricultural college team somehow won the Juco championships in 1958, you know, like like just these improbable sports stories like that, Um, you know, legendary, you know, uh, female college basketball coaches, um, you know, rodeo guys, you know, they're trying to up the emphasis on on rodeo and that kind of stuff moving into you know matt hoffman who i think was a went on to help found the x games you know is from oklahoma so though when you're talking sports you can go in uh, just so many different directions uh beyond the big name guys and the obvious stuff and i think that's what the museum did really well and you know really cool to have it within a minor league ballpark so uh check it out the
0: oklahoma sports hall of fame and Ben, we should loop back on something we talked about last week. This is a completely different direction from the Sports Hall of Fame, but is about setting a record in some way and somebody who, I don't know if he's already Hall of Famer, if the Hall of Fame exists for this. But anyways, Joey Chestnut, we talked about him last week going to Indianapolis, trying to break a popcorn record. Did he do it?
2: In case you've not heard this breaking news, yes. Joey Chestnut on Tuesday night, Tuesday, August 23rd, Established a new world record at uh, Victory Field, home of the Indianapolis Indians. Uh, he ate, I believe it was, 32 24-ounce uh, servings of popcorn, breaking the record of 28.5 servings um, that was held by Matt Stoney. And when Matt Stoney set that record um, in 2021, uh, he defeated Joey Chestnut. So Joey Chestnut really wanted another uh, try at this record. He did it uh, at victory field. Uh, He, he appeared there on August 16th and the following Tuesday, the 23rd, you know, promoting the Indians dollar menu items, did the popcorn uh, world record eating attempt. Um, It is what it is, but he is just incredible at what he does. Even if it's something that is a little, I think off-putting to some, I think myself included. Um, I mean, it's just amazing what he is able to do. So on a certain level, I do really, still deeply appreciate it. Just anyone who's just literally the best in the world, best of all time, you know, adding to his list of records. I believe this is his 56th, um, you know, separate uh, world record uh, in the field of competitive eating. I mean, 32, 24 ounce servings in eight minutes is, is what he did. And he did it on the field at a triple a ballpark, a great moment in minor league baseball history and American history. Um, did it at Victory Field, August
1: 23rd, 2022. Uh, you know, the the revolution um, defeating fascism, the moon landing, and now Joey Chestnut setting the, the popcorn record. A great moment in American history. It's also a rematch of sorts between him and Popcorn, correct? He tried this before and it did not go well. Uh, and he gave a quote, I know uh, Kelsey Anigan told us on, on Slack the other day, he gave a quote that said something along the lines of, it is personal for me in his, uh, in his rematch with popcorn here. Was that right?
2: Yeah, that was in the story that I, that I wrote because he had lost, uh, he had lost a popcorn eating contest to the man who established a world record um, in 2021. And, you know, said like, I'm coming back out there. <laughs> um, yeah. I talked to Joey Chestnut and he told me it's personal.
1: It's because you know
2: he he was defeated. Joey Chestnut uh,
1: and- woke up every morning and he had like you know a, a like a picture of a tub of popcorn like on the mirror and on the fridge when he would go to make his cereal in the morning or whatever. He's just, he's been mentally preparing for this rematch for a long time. I don't know if popcorn was aware of it, but Joey Chestnut certainly was.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think it was maybe a one-sided rivalry, but uh, Joey Chestnut <laughs> got the last laugh. Yeah, using his like punching bags with Orville Redenbacher's face on it, or whatever else he did to, uh, you know, to, uh, to
0: to
1: prepare himself.
0: Also, Tyler, also, Tyler you mentioned him, him having cereal or something for breakfast. Like that, just makes my mind reel. It like, what does they, Joey Chestnut
1: eat? I was just thinking that. Like, mm-hmm. does Joey Chestnut need sustenance in the form of like Does he have to eat? like 48 bowls of Frosted Flakes in order to like get through the day by starting with a meal like that? What is a normal meal like for a competitive eater? Hopefully
0: just normal. I you would know, think like so. They they deserve some normalcy, <laughs> but I, I don't know how they go from normalcy <laughs> to 32 servings of popcorn, so.
1: <laughs> Pretty amazing stuff. That is up on the site at Um uh, Ben, we'll talk about this obviously as September gets here, but where are your, uh, your next and final ballpark trips for this year?
2: Yeah, it's going to stay pretty local. Um still finalizing the itinerary, but I'm going to, you know, stay within uh, New York and Pennsylvania. So, um that'll that's going to be coming up. I hope to uh, make a visit or two over Labor Day weekend and then the week after that uh hit up some spots. So, um yeah, should have all the uh eyes dotted and T's crossed in the very near future and looking forward to getting back on the road one more time and uh one just cuz, you know, it, you know, you know how it is in life. You know, when I had a bunch of trips in a row and it was kind of hard to balance, you know, work, family and just a sense of routine, I was really happy to be off the road for a couple of weeks here in August. But now I'm like, what am I doing? It's baseball season. It's a very finite amount of time. I need to be on the road. I need to see my people. I need to get material, um, you know, and like a squirrel, you know, kind of have my stash. You know, I I get stories and just sort of stash them in my little tree, my story tree. And uh, for the long, cold winter ahead. I'm working on this metaphor, but I was going to was... say,
0: I'm going to start calling your cubicle
2: the story <laughs>
1: yeah. tree. I actually very much like that metaphor. It's so quaint. Uh, but, well, Benjamin Hill, you can find all of his stuff at MILB.com. And uh you can find Ben, of course, on social media at Ben's biz. And uh thanks, man. I'm going to be contemplating Joey Chestnut's regular meals for the rest of the day. Now, do you have his number? Can you text him and be like, Hey, what's a normal lunch for you?
2: Yeah, i do have his number i feel like it'd be a little weird be like hey remember that guy you talked to for 10 minutes Just following up on this just following up with a random question um but you know it's a it's you know as a journalist even when you have the phone number of someone like joey chestnut who probably there are others who would pay me untold huge sums to have access to it i cannot be bought and i will not be contacting joey chestnut
1: inappropriately (laughs) thanks man
2: you're welcome Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Well, this week on the show before the show podcast, we're really glad to be joined by Fort Myers broadcaster, John Vitas uh, calling into us from the Florida State League, where we have tons to talk about. It's been a, a very interesting year in the FSL. But first, John, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, of course. And let's get right into it. Um, We wanted to have somebody from the FSL on here for a couple of weeks just because there has been a big rule coming to the FSL. There's been a couple of big rules this year, but the biggest one people might have heard about a little while ago was the pie slice rule, which is basically another way of banning the shift in minor league baseball. It's getting experimented on right now in the FSL. You've been able to see it for a little while now. What can you tell us about the pie slice
3: yeah, I think it's uh it's more noticeable than it is um impactful, I guess is the way I would put it. Um, I'm not necessarily against it. I kind of find myself in the middle on a lot of these old school, new school debates, and I don't really have a problem with it. Um, it definitely has, you know, added a few hits here and there. I think it's probably less than one a game, but we've definitely seen some, you know, medium sharpness on the ground balls that get through the hole. Um, I think last night we had to play an extra innings where our second baseman dove for a ball that he couldn't get to. Um, which ended up being a, a game-winning hit that without the pie slice, he certainly would have made that play. Um, so it's affected a few games here and there, but um, I think the biggest thing is the the bright white lines on, you know, the, the watered-down infield is quite noticeable. So a lot of the purists that walk into the game for the first time, their first thing they ask is, what is that? Um, and I think they figure it out pretty quickly that it's a restricted area because you see – Um, the middle infielders kind of towing that line all game long. Um, So it's definitely, uh, it's definitely interesting. It's definitely noticeable, but it's not hugely impactful. I think it is accomplishing what MLB is set out to do, which is add a few more hits. So it's doing its job. I think just moving forward, maybe make it a thinner line or a different colored line, or even put some sort of, Um, just a dash at the back of the infield or something more subtle would make it probably uh, more palatable for a lot of the true fans out there, but it's definitely uh, doing its job.
0: Yeah. I mean, we should describe it. It's, it's essentially a bright chalk line. It's almost like a foul line in the middle of the park. Um, And have you seen anybody try to take advantage of it? I mean, obviously like the way you would take advantage is try to hit up the middle, but do you feel like, cause it's guys can't be in that zone pre-pitch. Do guys jump into the zone right when the ball's let go. Like, has there been anybody trying to feel out how to to work around it?
3: Yeah, I think the middle infielders, I think they they come real close to crossing it. You know, they start kind of right on it and then they they're not really jumping across it because they want to keep, you know, keep their balance. Um, and most times they can range into it and still make the play. Um, I don't think it affects the hitters in any way. I don't think they're changing their their approach because of it. It's a it's a relatively small um space and you, you know, you can't really um, be that accurate with the ball if you if you are you're a pretty darn good hitter but um, I definitely think it's had the desired effect we like I said we've seen a few you know a handful of hits get through that I think would have been outs um, without the pie slice so the the infielders it definitely affects where they set up I mean before they put it in um, if it's a right-handed batter that second baseman was playing right behind the bag um, so it's definitely forced them to slide over a good 10 to 15 feet.
0: And one other rule that's come to the FSL this year is the challenge rule, which sounds like something straight out of football, and it, it almost is in some of these other sports. Um, and, and that's more on you know using the automatic balls and strikes system, which is something that the FSL is, is well known for at this point. Um, not other leagues necessarily, but the way the Florida State League has become pretty experimental. Robot umpires are well known. Challenge system is a new thing for 2022. What has it been like watching that be implemented?
3: I love it. I love the challenge system. I think it's a really good hybrid between um, still having the human element to the game, not slowing down the game. um, And also at the same time, keeping umpires accountable um, and and also teaching them the strike zone at the same time. Cause the way we do it in our league is the first two games of the series are straight Robo ump games. So the umpires kind of take a back seat and see what the computer calls. And then it affects their zone from Thursday through Sunday when we do the challenge system. Um, you know, the ABS still has some kinks to work out. It's, it, it, you know, it sounds like it should be perfect because it's a computer, but I think we learned last year that the strike zone is a moving object. It's not something that's going to be the same for every batter. It's not going to be the same for every score. Um, So it's definitely something that they're still working on. It's not, it's not terrible by any means, but I don't know if it's that much better than a human umpire, Um, but the challenge system is a lot of fun. I know as a broadcaster, you know, I'm always wondering why a hitter is challenging a one, one pitch in the top of the second You know, you kind of want to save your three challenges for later in the game. Um, Our coaches have kind of given our players leeway to use it wherever they see fit. And, you know, some games we go into the eighth inning with all three challenges and some games we're out of challenges in the top of the third. So it kind of just depends on um, you know how the zone is that day and how aggressive our guys are challenging. But it's it's really fun to see you kind of learn which hitters know the zone best, because we have a few hitters on our team who have won almost every challenge this year and then some who haven't. So it's definitely a really fun wrinkle and it doesn't really add any time to the game. So I'm a big fan of the challenge system.
2: Well, John, going back to the uh, the pie slice rule, um, for me, you know, I always think, you know, how can teams capitalize on the things that happen in minor league baseball? So, you know, the pie slice on the field is an area in which fielders, you know, cannot position themselves. But has this led to the Mighty Muscles or any teams around the FSL doing any sort of uh, pie slice concession specials?
3: <laughs> that is a great call. I might have to uh, suggest that to the the marketing folks here. That's a a good idea we do have a pizza station here at hammond stadium but uh i don't know that's that's something we might have to build on moving forward
2: yeah and you know you mentioned hammond stadium the you know, spring training home of the twins and then uh home of the mighty muscles and i have not been there in uh many years and back when i was there about a decade ago it was the miracle and obviously a lot has happened since then changed the name to the mighty muscles uh new ownership uh all of that Um, But I feel that, you know, today and then, you know, Fort Myers has probably had a reputation for uh, being one of the more active teams in the Florida State League as regards marketing, promotions, that kind of stuff. Uh, If you could just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the ballpark experience right now and uh, what things are like in the Mighty Muscles era.
3: Yeah, this is just a we have a great front office culture here with the muscles. It starts from the top. Our uh, team president, Chris Peters, and our GM, Judd Loveland, have been in baseball for 20 years. Um, Chris is a marketing genius. He does a great job with sponsorship and fun ideas and really pushes the envelope. And um, this year we have a new owner, John Martin, who's been super supportive of really doing more with our promotional schedule. Um, So we've done five themed jerseys this year. Um, We've had four celebrities come out and do appearances. Our final appearance is actually going to be this weekend. We've got Jerry, the King Lawler, the uh, former wrestler coming out to do an appearance Um, early in April. We actually had Carol Baskin out for a tiger themed jersey night. Um, So the players wore tiger print muscles jerseys. Um, She came out to the stadium. We put her in a suite. She did the full media tour. Um, And it was all to raise uh, money for Big Cat Rescue in Tampa. So really fun, creative ideas like that. You know, we've got the usual nightly specials, you know, discounted beer nights. Um, You mentioned the Miracle. Every Thursday, we wear our uh, throwback baby blue Miracle jerseys and Miracle hats. Um, There's definitely a good chunk of our fan base that misses the Miracle. Um, So on Thursday nights, we put Miracle up on the scoreboard and all the PA announcements call us the Miracle um, so it's our throwback Thursdays every Thursday night. So um, I could go on and on. There's a lot more. But those were some of the highlights this year of some of the, the fun marketing ideas we had.
2: And the Florida State League, you know, has long had a reputation for being one of the more difficult to operate in, in terms of, you know, drawing large crowds. Um, you know, lots of other things to do in the area. Sometimes hard to, to uh, you know, sustain momentum after spring training ends. And then, of course, there's the weather, and we talked about this a little bit before the uh, we hit record on this interview. But Florida State League probably leads the league in tarp pulls. What's a, a typical day, uh, just for the front office staff and having to deal with that?
3: Yeah, this time of year in August, it's it's tough. Uh, this this league gets more rain. Than any other league I've I've heard of or been a part of. I mean, it it in Fort Myers here, especially down in the southwest coast. We're right up against the Gulf of Mexico, the warm waters there. And I mean, it'll rain three times a day. Feels like you're in the rainforest sometimes. You'll get a band at two, you'll get a band at four, you'll get a band at six. And we're still trying to push, you know, and get good crowds. And the weather is the biggest uh challenge to that a lot of times. So um, you know, this league is known for lower attendance and we're trying to buck that trend and continue to increase it. I think we're we're always top three in the league in attendance and we're just trying to increase that number with whatever we can do. But the the, the rain is such a battle. Um, I know our, our staff will routinely come in in gym shorts and T-shirts because there's almost no reason to put on the slacks and polo until game time. Because, you know, we're going to be waiting around at the tarp and um, a lot of times you're waiting to put the tarp on and it's sunny out. Um, and you're watching these gray clouds close in. So you're dripping sweat in the sun waiting to pull the tarp for when it inevitably inevitably rains within the next 30 minutes. Um, so it's, it's quite a song and dance. I'm glad, you know, being up in the press box, I don't have to pull it quite as much as some of the other front office members, but our, uh, our higher ups are just glued to the radar all day. And I think that's the biggest thing is the, the front office staffs are glued to the radar and the the players almost never hit on the field. I know in the other leagues they're used to taking BP on the field almost every day. Our guys might get out there once a week. The rest of the week they just pack it into the cages. Everything's indoors because you just can't trust the weather. Mm, man, uh, I would thank my lucky stars if I
0: were you if we if I didn't have to pull tarp as much as the rest of the front <laughs> office. Um but one thing I wanted to touch on, you know, coming up in a few weeks are the FSL playoffs. Um the Mighty Muscles clinched a first half division title in the West division uh, with a 41 and 23 record second half quite hasn't been up to the same standard, but the way minor league baseball works first half title, you're into the playoffs. What is it going to be like come playoff time? Like, is there a push right now for you guys to get people into the ballpark for the postseason? Is it just gravy at the end of the year? How do you guys treat playoffs?
3: Yeah, I think being the first half champ is a huge advantage because you have time to market your playoff games Um, So our tickets went on sale a couple weeks ago for the one guaranteed home game we have, which is Thursday, September 15th. Um, We could have as many as four home playoff games, just obviously depends on how things shake out, but having time to plan is great. I mean, I know we got some rally towels shipped in, um, where we've been contacting all of our season ticket holders and sponsors ahead of time to make sure they've got their seats ready to go. Um, so we're definitely going to try and pack it in as much as we can down on the third base side where our team is. Cause we get a really nice nucleus of diehard fans here. Um, compared to a lot of the other teams in our league. So we're excited to get them out and we're trying to get as many people as we can out on September 15th and um, hopefully the 16th and the 18th as we continue to hopefully win games. But um, yeah, it's a huge focus for us right now with only 10 or 10 home games left in the regular season uh, to, to get a big crowd for playoff games.
0: Let's talk about somebody who helped you guys clinch that first half division title. It was Emmanuel Rodriguez. When a MLB Pipeline updated our top 100 uh, just a few weeks ago. Emmanuel Rodriguez moved into the top 100 at number 97, which is considerable considering he's out right now with a torn meniscus. Um, to- very toolsy outfielder, it seems like, but you got to watch him every day. What really stood out to you about his first half?
3: everything everything he does everything right on a baseball field I'm so glad you guys have him in the top 100 because he hasn't played a lot I mean he had injuries last year he played 47 games this year but OPS over a thousand in that time but when you watch him the eye test is even more impressive than the numbers Um, I mean he is built like you know a, a full-blown adult at 19 years old Um, incredible strength I mean he is a a and I've I've watched a lot of minor league baseball. He is a true five-tool player. Um the only prospect that I would probably say I've seen that's better than him is Wander Franco. Um, everybody <laughs> no else prospect
0: they, himself. Yeah. That's yeah. A-
3: I would probably have a manual number two. I mean, I'd have to think about it and, and dig, dig a little deeper, but in terms of the tools and the ability and the ceiling, I mean, it is off the charts for him. Um, he had a couple opposite field home runs, uh, right before he got hurt, which always impressed me, especially for a teenager in this league with MLB uh, dimensions in most of the stadiums. So to me, he's got a, he's got a plus arm. He can fly. He understands the game. Um, He's, he's instinctual about everything he does. Um, And he's, he's one of the more well-respected guys in our locker room too. I mean, he really stays in his lane, keeps to himself, you know, works hard. Um, So a lot of his teammates absolutely adored him. And that's, that's huge too at at his age um, to win over everybody around him. Cause I mean, he can really play.
1: Hmm.
0: All right, John, we'll, we'll end on this one and we'll bring it back around to you and what we were talking about at the beginning with all these rules changes that have come to the fsl mostly because like you said it is filled with spring training ballparks it's very easy to implement this stuff um because you know a lot of teams are playing there in the spring training uh and they they want this equipment technology whatever in the fsl what effect does this have on your job as a broadcaster? Like, how has your job changed knowing that the ABS system is in place, that challenges are in place, that the pitch clock, you know, which is everywhere in minor league baseball now, but is is keeping things moving. You know, you, you were talking before, too. You've had jobs in Myrtle Beach and, and Port
3: Charlotte before this. How have all these changes changed what you do on a daily basis? It's not a huge effect on like my pregame prep. I mean, it's fun to read the memos when they come in at the beginning of the year and see what changes you're going to have compared to the other levels. When I'm on the air, though, I definitely find myself uh spending a lot of time explaining all the changes to the people tuned in. Um, you know, it's not going to be the same audience every night. So most nights I'm giving some sort of explanation on the rule changes. Um, I think I give the challenge rules every night I'm on the air. But I love it because, you know, we're on the cutting edge. We're kind of the the crash dummies on a lot of this stuff. Um so I get to, you know, being in the clubhouse is a huge advantage. I get to ask the players and coaches what they think about it. Um and then, you know, a lot of the the media, the major league media is interested in hearing about how it's going. Um getting interviews like this is always fun because we are one of the only leagues that's doing pretty much all of the the new changes around around the game so um it's fun I mean I love the pitch clock I love the challenges and um it's going to be cool you know down the road to, to say that I saw it before it even got to the major league so it's it's a lot of fun and, and it should be interesting to see how things continue to evolve all right well we'll put you on the spot real quick then in order of preference which would you like to see most implemented by major league baseball I think pitch clock number one. And I think that's, you know, almost an inevitability at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does shave 30 minutes off every game. It's, it's incredible. The the impact it has. I think one thing we know about baseball players is that they're out. They're really good at adjusting to things. And I mean, our guys adjusted and because most of our guys we had at the beginning of the year were in college last year. Um, So this was their first full taste of pro ball and they adjusted to the pitch clock within one series. Um, So they immediately speed up their pre pitch routine within a week. And then the rest of the season just flies by because you're playing two hour and 35 minute games every night. I mean, we've played plenty of games under 220 that went nine innings. So that's number one. And then I guess the challenge system would probably be number two. I mean, I probably still lean a little bit more towards just keeping the human umpires the way it is, but if we can get the ABS system to a a higher level than where it's at right now, there's the challenges I think would be fun for the fans. The one thing I always used to say to people when we, uh, when they were asking about it initially was, I think it'd be fun if we did it like tennis, where you go look at the video board and you watch the pitch come in. And, you know, nip the corner or not nip the corner and it says ball or strike. That might add a few seconds to the ordeal, but kind of would make it more fun for the fans to see where that pitch exactly was compared to what was called. And it could flip games. I mean, any 3-2 pitch that gets challenged gets really fun.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, the U.S. Open is just about to happen here in New York City. Um, How excited people get for tennis challenges and bringing that aspect of it to baseball would would be interesting, let's say. Put put it that way, even if it does add a few seconds, like you said. Well, John Vitas, Fort Myers broadcaster with the Mighty Muscles. Thanks so much for joining us and and taking us through all these challenges and changes. And um, good luck the rest of the way. And yeah, good luck to the Mighty Muscles in the playoffs. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate
1: it. I realized after we got done recording Ben's segment that we did not even uh, tease the interview segment, which you obviously all know uh, because of the title of the episode. But huge thanks to John Vitas from Fort Myers for joining the show. And uh, with that, time for Sam and me to dive into Three Strikes. And we are going to kick things off with a fascinating player development experiment We'll call it with the double A Birmingham Barons and the Chicago White Sox organization for strike one this week. The White Sox are undertaking uh, really a very interesting um, player development output uh, finish to the season, which they have dubbed like the coolest possible name Project Birmingham in which the team's top prospects uh, from a variety of levels are all now with double A Birmingham and uh, kind of almost going through like an in-season instructional league type of setup. Sam, tell us about Project Birmingham.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny when you Google Project Birmingham, you almost have to say it in an English accent because it has ties to Pink Floyd.
1: Ah,
0: so it's Project Birmingham. Birmingham. Uh, That's not an English accent. That's just how they say it. But uh, Project (laughs) Birmingham, it seems like that name is very much up in the air. I like it. It's certainly catching on. I'm going to try to make it happen as much as I I can. I I really want the Barons. I think it's
1: awesome. It shouldn't be up in the air because it's so cool. And the Barons should be like
0: selling shirts that say. Yeah,
1: absolutely. They should.
0: But yeah, Tyler, you mentioned um, the White Sox are are doing something a little bit special this year in that they are sending. They already have sent, actually, all the transactions went down earlier this week. Their top prospects from single A canapolis and high a winston-salem including their top prospect colson montgomery who's just finishing out his first full season to double a birmingham and getting all these guys on the roster at the same time uh basically as advanced instructs what do we mean by that it just normally instructs is like you get all your prospects together you want them competing against each other you want guys women playing in some cases all four corners of the, of the country in one place getting to know each other getting to get close as teammates, uh, in ways you really can't do unless it's spring training or in the fall at instructs. So now they're doing that at Birmingham and it's just a couple of weeks. It's not necessarily going to be a bit, the biggest deal, if it is super successful or not super successful, um, you're going to get a log jam at certain positions there are going to be some guys needing to try out certain, you know, new spots on the diamond. That's just the way it's going to work. But it's just such a fascinating experiment, and, and I think it starts from the fact that Chicago does believe in this group of White Sox prospects. The White Sox have not had a very good system for a while because they've been so successful at the major league level. Um, you think back to who they used to have in the system back when it was Michael Kopech and Johan Mankata and Eloy Jimenez and Luis Robert. And, you know, they used to have a very loaded system. All those guys have graduated, uh, including Nick Madrigal, who they've traded away now and, and Andrew Vaughn. Like they moved their guys up pretty quick uh, to make a quality major league team, not quite working out this year, but now they're starting to build up the system a little bit more. Colson Montgomery, Bonafide top 100 prospect now, Oscar Colas, who is already at Birmingham, is knocking on the door of the top 100, might actually join it if we get some graduations for the end of the year. It's just a fascinating experiment. It's something new. It's something different. And in an environment in minor league baseball in which it feels like you kind of know where everything is going, right? Like a guy goes from single A to high A in his first full year or sticks it out at single A all year just to, to find some footing. Getting aggressive with guys, getting them all together is just something new. And, and I think a lot of people in the industry are going to be watching this closely And in, in terms of how does this work? Like if Colson Montgomery doesn't do very well and they send him back to Winston-Salem to begin the end of the year, it's going to look weird on his player page. But you're going to have to remember this moment in context of this was super aggressive. This was just for an experiment. It's not saying he belongs necessarily in the Southern League right now. Which, you know, if I ever get the chance to interview Colston Montgomery for the show or otherwise, I want to ask him about that. Like, how does it change your outlook when it's like part of a project instead of, hey, you were hitting so well at Winston Salem and he was doing well, but you didn't necessarily earn it. It was part of this broader outreach. Maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, and and maybe it shouldn't. Like, if they think highly enough of you to send you to double A at any time in your career, that's a positive. Uh, And it's this, this is nothing but positive. It feels like there's also a backfill right of draft picks who are normally going to be stuck on the complex level in Arizona. Uh, And the Arizona complex league is, is over now. Um, So there's not really much of a season left, but there are guys you want getting extra at bats, extra innings. And those aren't to be found. Well, if you move everybody up to Birmingham, now, all of a sudden, Cannapolis needs players. Winston-Salem needs players. And you can get aggressive with those draft picks as wow. well. So it's just a, it's a very fun experiment. It's a very fun thought process. Uh, we're going to have to circle back on this next year. Is it just going to be a White Sox thing? Is it going to be something other teams uh, drift towards and want to try? Especially these deeper systems, it's it's fascinating. But Tyler, what were your thoughts when you heard about it,
1: Project Birmingham? Um, <laughs> no, I thought the same thing. It's it fascinates me when teams make unorthodox moves like this uh, to try to think outside the box and you know create something uh, out of the quote unquote dog days of summer in the minor league season. Um, and I think in addition to what it provides uh in terms of extra you know innings on the mound or at bats for hitters or whatever it is i think it also creates kind of this pressure cooker atmosphere where guys who ordinarily would not find themselves on a double a roster on august 25th of a, an early season in their careers now all of a sudden they're thrown into a clubhouse with a lot of different guys some more veteran guys some younger guys some super talented guys And what that creates for the younger players and how you can almost rise to the level where you are instead of maybe the level that you're best suited for, that type of stuff on the you know, sports psychology side of it all um, absolutely fascinates me. And, you know, when you look now at the the White Sox um, top 30s prospects list, if you go to, to MLB Pipeline and check out the, the top 30, the amount of guys who have double A listed as their level uh, is really cool. And, uh, you know, if you're a, a White Sox fan, and especially if you're a White Sox fan in Birmingham, uh, that's got to be pretty awesome to just look up and down that list and think, Oh, I can just go down and, and check out any of these guys uh on any given night now when when the Barons are home. Uh I think it's neat. And yeah, I think the most interesting thing about it will be if other teams adopt this philosophy going forward. If the White Sox really feel as though they've accomplished something here, uh, you know, will we see the Dodgers try this next year with Tulsa? Will we see the Twins try this next year with Wichita? Um, that is always the way that things like this evolve in sports. Somebody has to try it. If it works, other organizations think, okay, well, let's get in on that and see if if it helps our guys uh, in the same way. So yeah, I'm really fascinated to see how this goes for the White Sox because this is just such a, a cool concept and something that we haven't really seen before. Totally,
0: totally. and And new things are exciting. Yeah, exactly. Like that's why we get excited about breakout prospects every year and and people who show us something new and different. That can happen at, at the organizational level as and, well, so.
1: You know, and I think it's something that is spurred to a certain degree by the restructuring of minor league baseball. I think the last couple of years uh, have pushed teams you know consciously or subconsciously into thinking okay how can we more efficiently operate uh the pathways to get these guys to the big leagues does it make the most sense to see Colson Montgomery finish out the year by you know playing more for uh for Winston Salem or Canapolis or wherever or should we test this guy in a group of prospects fitting his talent level um even if maybe he is challenged beyond what he's immediately ready for come 2023 there's all of a sudden coles montgomery say no i've I've already been able to handle double a pitching uh to a certain level now that i'm back here to start this year i can take off i can be in charlotte i can be in chicago um so i like it i think it's it's really cool and if it doesn't work out you know, it doesn't work out. Then you go back to the traditional model of advancing guys when you feel as though they are either ready to be pushed or they have, you know, forced themselves to the next level. Uh, but I like that the White Sox are are trying something different, and I think that's a a very cool um, concept. And kudos to the player development side for the White Sox for giving it a shot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, it, maybe it'll be the norm. Like I said, yeah. maybe it's two years down the line, right. everybody's going to be
1: doing this. So uh, strike two kind of ties into this uh, more in a major league side, obviously, than the minor league side. But we are uh, one week away from the expansion of rosters across Major League Baseball. Now, obviously, rules have changed in recent years. It is no longer 40 men who can be carried uh, on the big league roster, but 28. And uh, rules that apply specifically to prospects now as they reach Major League rosters, when they are on Major League rosters, all of that. Sam, run down what you're expecting on September 1st as rosters expand.
0: Yeah, so there's multiple things going on here that we we should address. Normal September roster expansion is still not normal to me, Tyler. I mean, we've been covering this game for a while now. September roster expansion still in my brain means like bloated rosters. Anybody on the forty man can come up. Right, uh, it's a constant rotation through the bullpen. Um, you know, you got guys coming up just to relieve arms every once in a while. That's not what it is anymore. Uh, right now. Roster expansion is to 28 players and every team must carry 28 players back in the old, olden times, the olden times being like three years ago. uh, It could be anybody on the 40 man. So you could theoretically cover 40 guys in your dugout. Uh, But now it, it can only be 28, 14 of them have to be pitchers, but that's a limit. You can't have 16 pitchers and 12 position players. It's a limit of 14 pitchers again, to just stop those parades of of the, the bullpens that we would see, Um, especially in these later games. So you would think, okay, two additional spots, there are going to be some prospects coming up. That's pretty big. There's also a new thing under this CBA that was obviously agreed to back in the spring in which teams, if they have a top 100 prospect on their opening day roster, and that prospect is up for awards consideration within the first three years uh, after that opening day, in any season before qualifying for arbitration, I'd say. So it's not necessarily just three years. It's any season before qualifying for arbitration while with the same club, the team can get an extra draft pick. Why is that important now? Because we're talking about opening day with that. Well, we're we're now getting into a time in which prospects can be called up, but they're not going to accrue enough service time to lose their rookie eligibility for 2023, unless they're getting 131 at bats or, you know, they're crossing the innings limit, but that's, I, that's less and less likely by the day. So we could get into a spot here, and I'm going to spoil some names, but we, you look at the Orioles, and the Orioles are competing for an AL postseason spot. They're also moving Gunnar Henderson around the infield. He's getting time at first base. He's getting time at second base. Uh, they're trying to maybe find a spot for him in Baltimore. You can do that and still reap the rewards of having Gunnar Henderson have rookie eligibility coming into next year. Um, being on your opening day roster with major league experience, he would not show up wide eyed and bushy tailed and be like, "What is this major league thing?" He he would have played in meaningful games in September. So it, it's fascinating to see how that's going to work out. It's not just with contenders. I think we could get to a point where Corbin Carroll, the number three overall prospect in MLB Pipeline's Top 100, he could be a consideration for Arizona uh, because again, he's looking more and more major league ready. He homered just last night on Wednesday. Um, you know. pure five tool prospect shown more power than I think he's going to show in the major leagues. But anyway, uh, you know, he's a, he's a star for Arizona and having him play out the string at triple a Reno isn't exactly what Arizona has done with him previously. They like to challenge Corbin Carroll so they could do that. They could get him a spot, play him next to Alec Thomas in that outfield, make it a super defensive outfield. And by the way, Corbin Carroll can still be rookie eligible next year, be an instant NL Rookie of the Year contender if he's healthy for all of 2023. So it's not just as easy as rosters expanding. There's so many other things to consider here. Um, You look at the Red Sox and Tristan Casas. It seems like every day people in Boston are checking the Worcester lineup to see if Casas is still around or if he's going to join Boston, especially with Eric Hosmer on the IL right now. Uh, It almost feels like every team could have somebody feasible to call up in this scenario uh, and then competing for awards beginning next year with a major league ready prospect on an opening day. It makes it more exciting. Sometimes I think we talk about this in years past of, Oh, rosters are expanding. Are they going to call somebody up? It's like, Oh, probably not. It's going to burn some service time, whatever. But now with that other incentive of a potential draft pick and getting to use them for the stretch run for the, for the playoffs, or using them for the stretch run to get, experience. So by the time they show up in spring are even more ready to compete for a rookie of the year award. There's just a whole lot of wins to this scenario coming up. And I hope we do see a lot of guys make it. I I would love to see what Corbin Carroll looks like in the majors. I would love to see Gunnar Henderson locking into place alongside Adley Rutschman and you know DL Hall, also part of that group. He's come up once for Baltimore, but being a bona fide member of their bullpen would be huge for both him and the Orioles. Uh, I keep coming back to the O's, but I I think they're in a unique spot to take advantage of this. Um, So, yeah, they're going to be a lot, a lot to watch, not just on September 1st, after that as well. Uh, But even before then, we could see some guys come up and and be part of the major league roster uh, just because we're past that point now where they would graduate in 2022.
1: How about the playoff contending Baltimore Orioles? making moves in 2022. Pretty awesome, man. Uh, and final strike on this week's episode of the show before the show, friend of the podcast, Cade Cavalli, is said to make his big league debut for the Washington Nationals, a fourth-ranked prospect in that Nats organization, will debut on Friday against the Cincinnati Reds. Um, Cade Cavalli has had his ups and downs in pro ball. He was drafted during a very strange time. Uh, obviously, a guy who came into the Nationals organization out of the University of Oklahoma and uh you know gets to to make that climb really as one of the first players in the weird generation, the COVID generation. He was drafted 22nd overall in 2020, so obviously did not get a chance to play a minor league season in 2020. Uh, 2021 uh, gets a chance to finally get into competitive baseball in the professional ranks. And, you know, like I said, he's had a lot of ups and downs in pro ball, but he is finally ready for the big stage, and he will get there on Friday. Um, This is exciting for the Nationals. Nationals fans have had to deal with a lot uh, over the last couple of years. The next wave may not produce a Juan Soto, uh, but it is going to produce a lot of talent and Kay Cavalli is is one of the frontline guys.
0: Yeah, I mean he could absolutely be part of a big three rotation uh, for Washington right alongside Mackenzie Gore, who we don't really think about that much at least on this show because he's a graduated prospect, but we were very high on him coming in, you know, as he started to pitch in San Diego a couple months back. Josiah Gray, is a little bit more settled, obviously, having been acquired last year. Um, they they think highly of all three of these guys. And Cade Cavalli, we were big on coming into the year. He was last year's minor league strikeout leader, climbed three levels. Uh, you mentioned him being drafted in a weird year. The thing about Cade Cavalli, and he told me this in the spring, he's still learning to be a pitcher. He was a two-way player at Oklahoma uh, and obviously yeah. showed more promise on the mound. But this was not his everyday gig. He didn't always think, Going to college, like I'm going to be a full time pitcher. He's become that and he's still learning at it. So, even when you look at his age and you think, oh, he's a little bit on the older side, uh, at least a prospect of him, he's not 19, he's not 20, 21. It's still, he's still relatively inexperienced to some of these guys. So, beginning of the year, he was really struggling with his command, which was a problem dating back to when he first got to AAA last year. I think at high A and double A, Kate Cavalli's stuff is always going to play. He's going to touch upper 90s. He's got a slider and a curveball that move really, really well. He's got a change-up that can be on at times. It's a work in progress. But it's four good pitches, and they're tough to move – or they're tough to sit on. And it leads to a lot of swings and misses. But if you get to AAA and guys are more patient, they're not going to chase outside the zone. All of a sudden, Kate Cavalli's pitch count's running up. He's getting more walks than ever, whatever. So that was a struggle, I think, in the first half of the season. You look at when he's going to Washington now – his last seven starts, he has a one four seven ERA and 43 strikeouts against only 12 walks in 36 and two-thirds innings. It seems like he's figured some of this stuff out. I was watching his last start against Worcester. Still some command issues there, not necessarily control because control means walks. Command pitch to pitch, he was wavering. He was getting into a lot of 3-2 counts that all yeah. of a sudden, you know, it's a dozen pitches. It wasn't quite that many, but you're talking eight, nine pitches in and at bat. That really eats into your pitch count, and he only made it through five innings. He only Is gave it one run. That's a difference three. between a
1: five-inning start and a seven-inning start.
0: Exactly. But he's done that, too. He His outing before that against Norfolk, right. against Gunnar Henderson, against Colton Cowser, a really good Norfolk team, he struck out 11 in seven innings, uh, only needed 96 pitches for that. Goes to Worcester, 109 pitches. So that's the first time he's crossed the century mark. So we know he's lengthened out. We know he's on a hot run right now. Um, the pitches are going to play. The velo is certainly there, touching 99. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if he actually touched a little higher than that, just because guys get so juiced for their major league debuts here coming up on, on Friday. In his case, it's just what is going to happen when all of a sudden guys are getting on base. And you know, it, if you think the jump from double A AA to triple A is big, the jump, especially now from Triple-A to the majors is even bigger. He's going to run into some batters who are really going to sit on his stuff and not chase outside the zone. He might still get plenty of swings and misses and that's going to be great. I would not be surprised if he has some outings in which, you know, he strikes out well more or more than a, a batter an inning uh, or comfortably above that rate, but he could also have four-inning starts and and that. So, still learning how to pitch, still growing into the game. But he certainly earned this look. Um, he's been at triple A all year Had some minor skin issues with kind of blisters in the middle of the season. That seems behind him. Uh, but the stuff is going to be great. And for Washington fans, you know, again, if you're looking towards the next generation and you're looking for some excitement, Cade Cavalli provides a lot of it. Uh, and he, like I said, he's going to be somebody who's going to potentially lock into place and be there for a long time
1: and that is three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show josh jackson texted me yesterday he was all panicked about whether or not he was going to be able to get ghosts of the miners done this week because he's had so much going on and uh he was like wow if it's like late thursday i should be able to get it to you and then i woke up this morning and he had already texted me and said all right i sent you ghosts so he's the best <laughs> uh and he stops by for ghosts of the miners coming up next this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome
4: back! In which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One really used to play ball. To insist the others did takes a lot of golf. <laughs> in the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist A. The Florence Financiers, B. The Sheboygan Traders. C, the Beaumont exporter. The correct answer is C, the Beaumont exporter. He's an importer exporter, OK? <laughs> Not only existed, but shipped no less of a product than genuine American hero Hank Greenberg to the majors. Unlike goods loaded to freighters, the exporters stuck around for a long time, arriving and remaining in port in the southeastern Texas Canal town after other franchises, such as the Beaumont Oil Gushers, the Beaumont Blues, and the Beaumont Millionaires, had already sailed off to the hazy horizon of history. Although Bill Bailey delivered home perfectly well for the first exporters team in 1920, he led the Texas League with 216 strikeouts, and the club played with the exporters moniker on that circuit straight through 1942, then again when the Texas League picked up after the war in 1946 until the team changed its name in 1950, and then again from 1953 to 1955, then briefly in the Big State League in 1955, And, although the 1928 team had Carl Hubble spinning 21 games for battery mate and manager Claude Ugg Robinson, the Beaumont exporters were at their most productive when they were packaging players for the Tigers through a working agreement with Detroit in the 1930s. It was that arrangement that made an exporter of the very important Hank Greenberg in 1932. Born to a family of Jewish immigrants in Lower Manhattan and having played his high school ball in the Bronx, Greenberg signed with the Tigers out of NYU in September 1929 and battled vicious anti-Semitism from the earliest stages of his career. Spending his third pro season with the exporters, he sent 39 baseballs outside of the ballpark to lead the league. And, along with fellow future Tiger Schoolboy Rowe, who led the loop with a 2-3-4 ERA, helped Beaumont to its first championship. The exporters expounded on that theme six years later when the 1938 team won it all largely on the backs of more soon-to-be big leaguers, such as Dizzy Trout and future Pittsburgh Pirate Dutch Deeks, who turned in a late-season no-hitter en route to Beaumont's 38 crown. But by the 1950s, the Tigers' affiliation had come and gone, and so had the exporters' financial success. Fans in the box office passed each other like ships in the night. And that's how the exporters were expatriated from baseball. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams hit all the right notes in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Claremont Clarinets. B. The Right Drummers. C. The Tenafly Tenors. Want to know the answer? Swing it, baby! Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, signed up for dance lessons, and he doesn't know it takes two to tango.
3: Segment this week's episode of the show
1: before the show. MILB.TV is where you can catch the final month of the minor league baseball season, as well as select games, of course, free on MLB.TV. Sam, who are you watching on MILB.TV this week, next week?
0: Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of time till, until we see this guy. Uh, But Jarlin Susana, the number eight prospect in the national system after our update, um, acquired in the Juan Soto deal from the San Diego Padres by the Washington Nationals. He actually got called up to single A this week uh, and in his single A debut, closed out his first inning with, get this, a 103 mile an hour fastball.
1: Pretty good. Pretty good.
0: And it was amazing. Like I've heard some stuff about Susana at the complex levels. Him pumping 102. I get that. And it was a 103 on the stadium gun. So it was like 103 on the broadcast. That could be running a little hot. I get it. The fact that that's within the realm of possibility is insane for this guy, uh, given that he is only 18 years old. And if you watch him pitch, I implore you to go find this uh, clip that we posted to MLB Pipeline about Susana's fastball. You look at it and it's just like, oh, that's his fastball. Okay, you got a swing and miss on it. That's great. And then you look down it's 103 because it was so easy coming out of his hand. It was Effortless. I don't want to say effortless. You don't throw 103 completely effortless, but it was just so freaking easy coming out of his hand. Uh, The fact that he's throwing 103 already, the fact that he's this young, of course, uh, there's always some concern that pitchers that young who are throwing that hard that early could get injured at some point. But if he's doing this now, if he's doing it without a ton of effort, you know, the Nats could get something really, really special here in Susana on top of James Wood who is also on that Fredericksburg team, and you're going to always want to keep an eye on him. Um, One of the hottest hitters in the national system, which is incredible because he came over after the trade. Sometimes trades interrupt your season. There's a lot to pick up from. He's hit the ground running so far at single A with Fredericksburg, showing off all the tools that we saw he had in the Padre system. Um, So two big reasons to get excited at Fredericksburg. We were talking about Cade Cavalli last last segment uh, in terms of making Washington Go all the way down to the signal A level, and there are two other guys you can watch next week in James Wood and Harlan Susana. Uh, So keep an eye on them. Tyler, what are you watching?
1: So the guy I'm going to suggest to you, if you're a prospect aficionado, I'm sure you're going to go, oh, come on, not again. But there's reason behind it. Jack Leiter, who, of course, came into the season as one of the most ballyhooed prospects uh, of not just this year, but many recent years. Jack Leiter seems as though maybe he's getting things put together. The Texas Rangers prospect, uh, who was taken, of course, second overall in the draft last year in 2021. Uh, The numbers have not been great for Jack Leiter throughout this season. Uh, Back in April, he was okay, an 0-2 record, but a 2.84 ERA. He struck out 19. He only walked 9 in 12 and two-thirds. But uh, in May, the ERA was 6.14. June, it was 6.43. July, it was 7.84. It was just three starts, but still. However, over his last handful of starts, Jack Leiter is on a much better track. His ERA for the month of August, 4.05. Struck out 26 and walked 12 in 20 innings pitched. So it seems as though the command is getting back on track. Those numbers were not good uh, throughout June and July. So there is the possibility... That we will see a good flourish from Jack Leiter before this season uh concludes. He and Frisco will be on MILB.tv, the double A Texas Rangers affiliate. He is probably slated to go on Thursday. Uh his last start was on the 24th. Um, so we may see him make a Wednesday start, but he's usually Wednesday, Thursday, right in the middle of the week. And you can catch Jack Lyder and the Frisco Rough Riders on MILB.tv. So That'll do it. Um, we are steaming into that final month of the minor league season. You can get in touch with the show, of course, uh, podcast at MILB.com. You can find us on social media. Sam is at Sam Dykstra, MILB. I am at Tyler mon. And uh, for Sam and Ben and Josh, any huge thanks to John Vetus. My name is Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week.